Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Talking Musicology, a bi-monthly musicology podcast. My name is Stephen Graham and I'm here as ever with Liam Cagney. Hello. Musicology ain't what it used to be. As a scholarly discipline, musicology has always been caught between stalls. Whether we think of its sometimes awkward and, let's face it, usually subordinate relationship to practical music making and listening both inside and outside the academy, or of more recent struggles over disciplinary scope, subject and method that pull musicologists and their work this way and that. How and what we study as musicologists are important but often anxiety-making questions, which perhaps understandably tend to devolve into tribal drum-beating and wagon-circling protectionism. After all, if the ground on which we work either is or is even just perceived to be constantly under threat, whether from apostats inside the discipline or university administrators and public policymakers outside it, some musicological pearl-clutching over another scholar's goal is probably to be expected. Which brings us on to David Blake's Musicological Omnivory in the Neoliberal University, our subject for today's episode. Published in the summer 2017 issue of the Journal of Musicology, Blake's article uses a corpus of 120 award-winning musicological monographs published between the years 2010 to 2013 to paint a disciplinary picture, as it were. Analyzing the introductory rhetoric and framing of these books, Blake, in essence, diagnoses the current or recent, I suppose, taste paradigm of musicologists. This taste paradigm, argues Blake, signals a clear preference for inclusive values. These values derive from and contribute in turn towards producing a kind of zeitgeist orientated around multiculturalism, omnivorous consumption and self-cultivation, and neoliberal entrepreneurialism and flexibility. As Blake puts it himself, and it's worth quoting from his abstract at length, since it does such a clear job of setting out the stall of the article, quote, this essay attributes the rise of inclusive values in recent musicological work to multicultural and neoliberal reforms in American universities. Musicological inclusivity is characterized through omnivore theory, a sociological theory of taste correlating educational attainment with a disposition for multicultural appreciation and a rejection of hybrid modes of exclusion. Analyzing discursive values using a corpus of 120 books published between 2010 and 2013, this essay elucidates three foundational values to musicology's inclusiveness, an interest in studying diverse music, a predilection for inter or transdisciplinary methodologies, and the rejection of musicology itself as outdated and hegemonic. The first two of these, Blake says, derive from the multicultural turn in the humanities, offer fruitful ways for musicologists to interact with the diverse cultural and technological environs of contemporary academia. The third, however, reaffirms the neoliberal devaluation of organizations and specializations, casting musicology as a straw man that bears scant resemblance to the intellectual work currently undertaken within the discipline." End quote. This is a big, unwieldy article, as you can tell. Blake not only reads into his corpus these three values, but also, for instance, provides introductory summaries to such huge topics as neoliberalism and omnivore theory, and indeed even breaks his three main themes down further into nine sub-themes, which he uses as lenses to organize his reading of his literary sample. The size of the mission threatens to topple Blake's article at a number of points, not least when the central mast of his discourse analysis starts to get blown over by the large interpretive flags of omnivore theory and neoliberalism. But the vim with which he approaches it and the timeliness of the text, when musicology is indeed facing what Blake calls late in the article a uh, so-called crisis of employment, may go for that somewhat. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, I think. So before I rush to these sorts of judgments, Liam, what did you make of this piece? 
this is one of those state of the nation, state of musicology type articles or books, which we're all familiar with from musicologists over the past few decades, like Joseph Kerman or the new musicology, or, where this, I mean, it's not actually musicology, is it? it's metamusicology. I think it's very important to underline this at the very start of the discussion, that this is not an example of musicology. It's an example of an analysis of musicology. And I think that Blake is doing a really good service in bringing up a lot of these issues in such a stylish and well-written way. But in other words, the article is a little bit confusing and maybe not as effective as it might be. I found the theoretical framework and the discussion of the links between multiculturalism and neoliberalism uh, very useful. Like the way Blake charts this transition from what he terms highbrow exclusion to omnivorous inclusion uh, within the discipline of musicology, within its set of values and its practice, uh, I found to be quite persuasive. But I found less persuasive, as you suggested in your introduction there, Stephen, the discourse analysis, the case study of 120 books. I think we'll probably get onto this in a little while, but you can pick a few flaws in the method and in the data set. And also the conclusion in which Blake uh, calls for a democratic musicology, I found a little bit yeah, un unpersuasive. But overall, yeah, there, there's a lot of good in this article. I think anybody with an interest in musicology as a, a practitioner, as a teacher, as a researcher, probably should read this article. Yeah, I mean, I think you've you've highlighted well the, the two main strands, I guess, of this piece, which is the, the kind of central corpus analysis or discourse analysis of these 120 books and the kind of method that's entailed therein. And then the kind of framing which is organized around that. So the stuff about neoliberalism, multiculturalism, which um, is used as a kind of a, a hefty wedge into the into the article and then kind of rounds off the article at the end. So I guess uh, depending on your, your kind of politics and your your experience, the, the stuff about neoliberalism would be more or less persuasive. I found it interesting, certainly, and I found the use of omnivore theory helpful, but the same time i found blake's introduction to those two topics to be generous i'd say that it's kind of textbook level or the ungenerous perhaps wikipedia level and that's not to say it's not an interesting gambit to to put these two things together with the kind of general thrust of musicology as a discipline and to try and mount an argument about their kind of influence and kind of coercive force on, on musicology, I guess. But I, I found I found them such huge areas that an attempt to kind of wedge them in in the way that he does is a little bit tenuous to me. Um, there's a kind of a, a flourish towards the end when he's run through his, his, his discourse analysis and given us all this evidence for the way in which musicology is, is and is not inclusive. Um, and I guess it's worth saying a bit more about that perhaps in a moment. But once we get back to neoliberalism, it feels a little bit bolted on. It feels a little bit impressionistic to say that all this stuff is happening. All this stuff is happening outside music and musicology. The two are necessarily linked. I found that a very unpersuasive part of the argument. I actually found the link between neoliberalism and multiculturalism or inclusiveness to be a useful one. In terms of politics in a wider, in a wider view, I had a conversation with an economist recently 
who considers himself to be of the left and who was saying to me that he believes there is no real economic left at the moment and that the over focus on identity politics is in fact quite consistent with neoliberalism and he argued that it's entirely consistent with capitalism and neoliberalism's need for new markets and i believe then that the link in that blake makes in this article between neoliberalism and this type of inclusiveness isn't without worth right i mean it wasn't so much that i, I wasn't convinced by the link it was just that i've seen it made quite a number of times you know right back to kind of source texts on neoliberalism from david harvey and others you know right. the idea that postmodern inclusiveness, you know, the rhetoric of inclusion, i.e., you know, diversity agendas, you know, including the right type of people on TV shows representing different cultures, different genders, different sexualities, and so on, is somehow a kind of a salve for kind of social inequalities and so on. And the idea that just because you represent, you then kind of cure society's ills is somehow thin, is a, is a kind of a, an argument which has been waged against um, postmodernism, which is a kind of haunts this haunts this article as a bit of an elephant in the room, and wage more broadly against identity politics, and it's it's an argument I think to me that's not without merit, although itself it's a little bit reductive in terms of its framing of identity politics, which doesn't necessarily need to exclude um, economics, for example, and often doesn't. It's not so much the link between neoliberalism and multiculturalism that itself is unconvincing. It's just that it, to me it's a tiny bit tired at this point, and. More to the point, within this article, I don't believe that it's demonstrated evidentially why there is a link in musicology or how there is a link in musicology. The two things are kind of placed together as like an ice cream sandwich. One is the wafer, one is the ice cream. <laughs> they go together, but they don't ever really they don't ever really fuse. You okay. know? I think that that so, was the use you made then of the or how the transition was made into the discourse analysis. The thesis is kind of that this omnivory contributes to the creation of discursive values which then set the agenda for research and that that agenda or those values are ineffective in fighting neoliberalism mm -hmm. that, that's the sort but of it, argument I, I but i don't think he demonstrates that as you suggest no and it's kind of circular isn't it because if he says that musicology is premised on values of um kind of omnivorous based and neoliberal um economics and then he he generates a corpus to investigate that question and then the corpus surprise surprise ends up um, confirming his kind of initial hypothesis it seems to me a little bit circular like he had the premise of the argument and the conclusion of the argument all wrapped up in a bow and the, the kind of evidence portion is simply kind of show me kind of verification of something that he already um a kind of a hobby horse he already pre-formatted if you like um, I mean, this is this is being unfair to the article because there's much more to it than than I'm giving it credit for. I mean, even the the discourse analysis in the end, I did find quite interesting. To be fair, I went into it quite skeptical because because of the way he sets up his his sample, if you will, or his data set. Um, so maybe we should talk about that a little bit. So there's 120 books. Um, he uses only the kind of introductory matter of these books because he thinks this this is where the kind of agenda is set. The kind of values are. Uh, are being are being kind of established within each of these books and these are all books or monographs which receive subventions from uh, the american musicological society um, in one form or another so to him this sample um, which is quite small and quite narrowly defined it then is able to represent as he says a kind of a disciplinary paradigm 
Do, do you think the sample can do that? Uh, two problems with that sample. One, it's only English language musicology. We might come back to that in a little while. Mm-hmm. Two, it's just focusing on the introductions and prefaces uh, to these monographs. And I really am convinced that that's an adequate way of analyzing the contents of a, a monograph just by looking at the stylistic tropes, um, the phraseology used uh, in the initial parts of a book. It's well known that these conventions have to be followed to some degree. If one is writing a monograph or often an article, so, you know there are certain steps you're, you're expected to follow as a way then of summing up the book's contents, which I think is it's fair to say he's saying that's what they do. I don't think that that strategy is, is very convincing. Right. I mean, what's interesting there, I guess, is that you're right on one level, which the introductory matter is only ever rhetoric. It's only ever a kind of a key which which opens a door, but then what's in the room itself is often quite different to how it's been built on the outside. So in, in that respect, this doesn't really give us a sense of the content or the meat of musicology. It gives us a sense of how musicology wants to build itself. Although I don't think he would necessarily disagree with that, because I think he does make the point uh, once or twice that actually he's analyzing the introductory matter because that for him is a place on which musicology explicitly kind of self-identifies, if you like. And so he says, you know, he's not looking at the truth content of these um, statements. He's not necessarily even looking at the content of the books. He's looking at how musicology wants to build itself. That's, um, that's, that's, a, that's a problem, though, in not recognizing a distinction between two different uses of what on the surface is an identical term. Like he gives a few examples of terms, rhizome or multiplicity, let's say, and um, analyzes how, you know, the word multiplicity crops up in a lot of these different books but that that it just assumes that the content is basically the same or that the concept is identical each time it is used whereas i would say that a concept can vary greatly between two different authors and how they use it and one one might be much more philosophically sophisticated than another one what this type of discourse analysis put in mind to me is a sort of ai approach the way ai is programmed the machine will be taught to recognize the category of table, but doesn't obviously know what, what a table is. It's just taught to recognize something it's been programmed to, to interpret. So this type of discourse analysis follows a similar strategy where it just recognizes the term without actually analyzing the content or, or recognizing what that thing is. I mean, I guess we're supposed to take it, take his word for it that he himself has done the work of analysis, which he is then um, kind of boiling to the surface, the, the kind of meat of it. And he's using these these hooks, these kind of introductory statements and tiles to um, give us a window into that. But I think actually that would be being a little too generous. I think the point you made there is is a very subtle and important one. And it's, as you said, it's about specificity it's about um kind of meaning it's about the way concepts swerve and sway depending on their application and depending on their their framing and so on so so actually what he's done like you say you use the term ai but when you were talking there you reminded me of um the book by uh, jody dean called blog theory where she kind of makes a similar point about kind of word or keyword aggregators in the internet when when they when those things become um, the means of academic analysis, they kind of rob academic analysis of of any of its kind of critical weight because all they're doing is looking at kind of surface markers and not actually the kind of 
if you like, um, signifying texture of how those things are are built into a, an in, into an argument. So I think you've hit on something quite important there. And what did you think of the discussion of Bourdieu and of, uh, like I just mentioned earlier, this distinction between highbrow exclusion and omnivorous inclusion? Because um, Blake certainly says some things which are well, could be construed as controversial. For example, it's one quote which uh, kind of leapt out at me. He said, omnivores project tolerance, but discreetly maintain dislikes based on class distinctions. I'm generally quite, I have a soft spot for people who take very unpopular uh, positions like that. Right? <laughs> you know, he could he could certainly come in for a lot of criticism with people who would be offended. But uh, I think it's useful when people, you know, set out an unpopular opinion like that. Did you think mm-hmm. that uh, there was anything in it? I mean, I started out like 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 other sections in this article. I started out quite skeptical because I thought, okay, we're going to get a kind of a intro one hundred and one um, kind of a account of omnivore theory, which you know, if you've read if you've read any of these texts or if you've read you know fairly popular music music books like Carl Wilson's book on Celine Dion or any of these other fairly kind of cultish almost books, which have heavy circulation amongst popular music scholars and students and things like that omnivore theories is somewhat old hat so i started out thinking oh, okay as with the discussion of neoliberalism we're going to get a couple of pages gloss of what omnivore theory is eventually with with gambits like the one you just mentioned he does actually bring some personality to it and he also introduces some some helpful kind of clarifying complications if you like when he mentions more recent texts so so for example in response to eric Droth's piece criticizing omnivore theory within musicology he mentions more recent scholarship using omnivore theory and how they bring a much more nuanced sense of how this kind of base culture might operate amongst different groups of people. So, you know, I'm all for kind of strange and possibly contentious claims like that. And that one that you mentioned um, seems fairly accurate to me. I just wanted to come back now to what I was saying earlier about metamusicology. Would you agree that this is a fair way of talking about what it does? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And also, um, it's interesting because I think there's more metamusicology these days than there is musicology. <laughs> I sometimes words upon words upon words about right, words. But I mean, there, there's obviously a call for it. And what I started thinking about in relation to this when I was reading the article was that, I mean, I'm all for that, except that you know, some, sometimes it can get a little bit tedious, but I think that's to do with the strategy or the methodology. For me, where this article kind of went off course was when it pursued the main strategy of its argument, which was the discourse analysis. And I started like comparing this to philosophy. It's very, I mean, it's totally natural within philosophy that philosophers write books about other philosophers as a way of thinking what philosophy is. We don't really get that so much in musicology. We don't really have musicologists mm. writing books like monographs about musicologists as a way of analysing what musicology is or does, with some exceptions like Adorno, although it's debatable whether he should be termed a musicologist or not. Um, and for this type of metamusicological practice, that would be something I'd be interested in seeing more. So rather than taking this big data set of 120 introductions to award-winning monographs, why not study one do like a case study of one musicologist and their output and their concepts and how they engaged with their field and their object of study and trying to come up with some conclusions then about the discipline. Right. I mean, this points up one of the main issues here, which is that there's a kind of a, an aspiration towards scientific completion somehow, as if he has diagnosed a field 
he has diagnosed the discipline through this huge, in one sense, huge um, sampler data set, when actually it might, we might have gotten a more interesting sense of the discipline, as you say, through doing a deep dive into one or two or three key figures. I mean, I just think, I just think it's, he's kind of, he's ended up, it's ended up being neither fish nor fowl. He's not got, he's not got completion. He's not got a kind of a, any kind of a convincing sample because in a short article or even in a long article, you, you just can't cover this stuff in any kind of a substantial way. I think this is, if you are going to aim for a kind of um, completion um, or, you know, comprehensive kind of coverage, I think this needs to be a massive research project undertaken by a team of investigators or at the very least a book in itself, not an article. I think it just gives short shrift to the discipline and and I just don't think this data set is convincing. So your point about um, diving deeply into kind of one book is a good one. You also mentioned the fact that it's all English language scholarship. He is focused on America and the discipline in the US, but as ever, you know, it's it's only all the poorer for, for that. I think I think it would have been much more interesting to at least have some kind of comparative sections looking at um, the kind of discourse in musicology in other countries and other territories. Have you been following the thread in the uh, AMS list serve about uh, graduate language requirements? Yes, I certainly uh, have with 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 relish. With the sort of counter thread running on musicology Twitter, taking the piss or lambasting what what people were saying on that list. So that for me, it's it's quite interesting to note these two things going along side by side. The I guess we can call it uh, musicology Twitter movement or a scene seems to me like the new version of the new musicology without necessarily having produced yeah. uh, any works to justify itself yet but there is a definite generational shift apparent in that that's so true that's so interesting how does musicology twitter how does that square up with this article in particular you know at one point he talks about right and left critiques of musicology you know the right one would critique i suppose uh, the diversity agenda and the left one might critique the, the supposed neoliberal um, program which is being imposed on it. How does the musicology Twitter, which I guess lines up with identity politics and, and struggles in that area, how would that line up against or with this article, do you think? I guess it could fit into what he says about this straw man of old musicology that is brought into things. So he says at one point that in these recent accounts of musicology, musicology as a concept appears as outdated and incompatible as using a VCR to access a YouTube clip. So he's kind of putting his finger on the generational change and the technological change that, that's come with it. And I guess you could say using a VCR to access a Twitter clip or something like that. You could definitely map some of his arguments onto that that kind of tension within members of the musicology yeah. community. Um, I'm not sure about the left and right wing side of it. I mean, there are so many different variations of left and right that, you know, one proceeds with caution. Do you, do you have any suggestions? Yeah. Well, I don't know. It just occurred to me um, when you were when you were talking there that, you know, one of the interesting little moments in this article, I think, happens towards the end when he's he's talking, he's making these links to neoliberalism as a kind of a explanatory framework for why all this inclusive rhetoric is driving the discipline. I'm less convinced by that, at least at the level of detail in which he's kind of offered it here, I think it needs to be a bit more um, kind of concrete and persuasive. But in any case, he does make one point, which is that he, he talks about the way in which there's a kind of a disassembly amongst a lot of musicologists. They say, oh, traditional musicology does this, 
sketch studies, you know, studies of right. old composers. It's it's monolithic, it's static, it's this and that. We're doing something completely different. Actually, one thing that his corpus, as limited and as problematic as it is, manages to do actually is demonstrate quite well that there is a lot of rhetoric about I don't do that. I'm interdisciplinary. I cross over. I'm considering lots of contexts. I'm looking at lots of music. I'm etc. etc. So there is a kind of a tension between the straw man of musicology or the straw person of musicology, which his corpus shows doesn't really exist anymore. So perhaps um, musicology Twitter is 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 railing against something which either doesn't exist or doesn't exist quite in the kind of imposing way that maybe it thinks right. it does. Um, just just one or two more things, I suppose. So the you know he 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 does this extensive analysis of all of this literature to try and demonstrate inclusive values, but does he need to do that at all? What do you mean? I mean, who's who would be surprised that this rhetoric is kind of shaping and dominating musicology in the past few years? Um, well, I don't think that that is in itself a pointless exercise, but it it's, depends on what you do with it. Then I think it kind of stops short of maybe going anywhere with with the the data or the the analysis. So there are there is a lot of rhetorical similarity between a lot of different scholars' works, um, but yeah. So what at that point? Okay, what what does that mean? Yeah, I think it's at that point that I would like a more philosophical kind of diving in. I mean, there there are issues here of style and how style is linked to the institution of musicology within university context. Without wanting to get too grandiose, I mean, we ask ourselves, what is musicology? Then is musicology its institution within the university context, or does it just exist, or does it have a kind of dual existence? One this historical institutional creation and the other the concept itself or the kind of promise or the principle of thinking about music and if we accept that these two different things exist then musicology in the kind of more conceptual fashion might crop up in era and it can crop up stylistically in all sorts of different forms it can crop up in journalism it can crop up in fiction it can crop up in you know a lot of non-academic contexts and from that point of view then maybe some kind of discussion of style and thought in musicology might be kind of suggestive in opening things up if we're talking about opening things up and going beyond you know rhetorical flourishes that are are easily predictable yeah i wonder is is his aim to open up i mean let's i suppose that brings us on to the conclusion of the concluding argument of the article which is around this this democratic musicology right. to use his term and around around this idea that um actually in order to resist neoliberalism musicology should embrace its kind of uh, the kind of specialization and its kind of disciplinary identity as a as a special kind of discourse unto itself. Um, do you find that convincing? Well, well like what you just said there, I do. I mean, specialization is that's everything in any discipline, I think. And even in interdisciplinary work, then the understanding should be that two or more specialists are coming together with certain skill sets and methodologies which have been you know, taught to them or disseminated or passed on to them within their disciplinary context. So, yeah, I, I do believe that specialization is really important. This sort of utopian idea of a democratic musicology doesn't really interest me so much. I mean, essentially, when it comes down to it, I just prefer seeing people do good work rather than trying to postulate 
how good work should appear or what musicology should be in a in a kind of yeah, theoretical <laughs> sense i think indeed and i mean that as with some of the other concepts here democracy need, needed someone packing let's say um and how he uses it but but nevertheless I, you know as usual we've ended up um harping on the negative a little bit where i did really enjoy the vim of this thing and i enjoyed the fact that he had a soapbox and he was going to stand on it no yeah, matter these what. things are always of value, these sort of analyses of where the discipline is at. And there is a lot of value in this article. As I said earlier, I think it's going to be worthwhile for anybody to read it who's involved with musicology, be the um, teachers or, or students or just researchers or ro rogue oh, musicologists or very... gonzo musicologists. As, as he, gonzo as he musicologists, point, indeed. I'm trying to envisage some kind of Hunter S. Thompson type uh, musicologist. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Oh, would that our discipline was so sexy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a very teachable text and a very valuable text, I think, um, for students and for uh, fellow musicologists. So I definitely would encourage people listening to have a read of it. Now, finally, we'll turn to Research in the Round, where we discuss recent publications and conferences in the area of musicology. My contribution to Research in the Round this week is a study day, a call for papers for a study day hosted by the Institute of Musical Research in London called Beyond Research, Autoethnography, Self-Reflexivity and Personal Experience as Academic Research in Music Studies. I'll just read a little bit from the blurb. The advent of autoethnography, a form of qualitative social science research that combines an author's narrative self-reflection with analytical interpretation of the broader context in which that individual operates, has come at a critical time for the discipline of music. While autoethnographic approaches have received significant application to the discipline of music internationally, for instance in Australia, this study day aims to raise its visibility at such a timely juncture in the UK in regard to the REF and the TEF. It will thereby consolidate the seminal contributions made by isolated studies in areas such as music, education, sonic arts and composition and performance. It also offers significant opportunity to initiate dialogue with academic fields as disparate as the social sciences, education and health studies in which autoethnography is more substantively practiced. So it promises to be a very interesting study day. It must be one of the first on autoethnography in musicology. And it aims to transcend the production of so-called me-search, work that merely draws upon the author's autobiographical description in an academic context. That does sound interesting. And since we mention him in every single episode, I think we must mention him again. Uh, surely Ian Pace will be an avid member of the audience. Well, for actually, today. now that you mention it, he's one of the keynote speakers, I should have mentioned. So ah. keynote speakers, Ian Pace, City University of London, Neil Hyde, Royal Academy of, Mu of Music London, and Professor Darla Crispin from the Norwegian Academy of Music in Oslo. Very good. Um, so that does sound interesting. Um, my contribution this episode is a book called Beyond Unwanted Sound, Noise, Effect and Aesthetic Moralism. It's by Marie Thompson. Just started reading it. It's very interesting. It kind of picks up in the lineage of concept or, or kind of theory driven um, analyses of noise, uh, picking up on people like Paul Hegarty, David Novak and others and other philosophers outside uh, music studies. Um, the kind of core argument is that um, she positions noise as a kind of a not as a kind of a negativity, but as a, as affectivity. So organized around different kinds of affect 
And she says, building on the Spinozist assertion that to exist is to be affected beyond unwanted sound asserts that to exist is to be affected by noise. So it's been very compelling so far. So I'm looking forward to diving deeper into that book. So that's it for episode 10 of Talking Musicology. Hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next time.